DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the St. Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He is the author of Hidden Mountain's Secret Garden, a Theological Contemplation of Prayer, as well as numerous other books focused on the spiritual life. In this series of Conversations with Dr. Lillis, we focus on Doctor of the Church, St. Teresa of Avila, and her great spiritual masterwork, The Interior Castle. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Anthony. It's great to be with you, Chris. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. We are in the third chapter of the Fifth Mansions of the Interior Castle. Before we jump into it, just remind us, at this point in her life, does she have the association with John of the Cross still, or is he serving as her spiritual director? I do not believe he's serving as her spiritual director when she's writing this work. She writes this work at a time John of the Cross has been freed from prison. This is years of reflection over what the reform is and what mental prayer is. So this is kind of her her master work at the end. And John of the Cross is still very active in the reform. But at this stage, the game, God has kind of moved him to work in a kind of in a a different place and different ministry while she is kind of journeying and continuing to found convents and so forth. So they're still very active and very much on the same team, but John is finding himself more and more into leadership circles in the reform while Teresa is continuing her work as a founder. I believe at this time, actually, Gracienne is her spiritual director. It's interesting that she is taking us into the real heart, as it were, of contemplative prayer at a time where they seem to be so busy. And this dispels a lie I think some people buy into that, you know, I will enter more deeply into contemplative prayer as soon as my life settles down. If if only things weren't so busy, I'd have more time to spend for prayer. Well, sometimes it's like that, like when you have a very, very sick relative or children uh, need a lot of extra attention and so forth. So I'm not going to say there's no truth to that at all. Uh, Many years ago, I had a conversation with Father Grishel on this specific point, and he kind of noted that in apostolic work, the more intense the apostolic work, the greater the graces of prayer, that contemplation and apostolic work really didn't hold each other back, but actually it's almost like has the intensity of one increased the intensity the other did. He he had a very practical way of kind of uh, summarizing it. He said, busy people get things done. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, and I don't think he was talking about uh, that kind of unnecessary uh, frenetic busyness where you're just running around like a chicken with your head cut off. But I do think it's the kind of industry that we throw ourselves into because we love the Lord when 
our apostolate and even our and our apostolate can be our families is about loving the Lord with all our heart, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors herself. You always find time for prayer in the midst of all that. And when your prayer isn't about trying to attain states or therapeutically get your life in order, but instead your prayer is, is something that you, you spend listening to the Lord who loves you. It's complementary. The two movements aren't in competition, but they really do support each other. And that's why prayerful people tend to live more apostolically fruitful lives. And people who have apostolically fruitful lives tend to root themselves in very intense prayer. Now that we're entering into this third chapter, as she would have us reflect on the little dove, (laughs) you and I, we did a, a big search trying to find where we've heard that term before. That little dove, it kind of refers to both the dove and to the the butterfly that she would speak of, doesn't it? Yes. You know, before when the reform was especially under scrutiny and she had to be very discreet about what she was writing in her letters because they were being intercepted and misused by people. She used to refer to the sisters as little butterflies. In our, our last conversation, she talked about the transformation of the silkworm into the butterfly with beautiful white wings. Well, a dove has white wings, and so this this image kind of is connected. Bear in mind, you know, the whole idea, the difference between a silkworm and a butterfly. Silkworm is kind of fastened to the things of this life. It kind of plods around. It does the best it can. It works hard with its imagination and its memory and its intellect to spin silk, and in spinning silk, it it makes a little cocoon to die in. Uh, The whole purpose of all our efforts at prayer uh, and meditation uh, earlier in life is we're stirring our devotion for the Lord, and the reason why we're stirring our devotion to the Lord is so that we can enter into a kind of spiritual death, a death to everything that is not for love of Him. And this is a very different uh, way of looking at spiritual exercises than we normally hear for in a a lot of different conversations. Spiritual exercises are a way to kind of reach out and attain God in in one form or another. For Teresa of Avila, it's not that at all. These spiritual exercises are something that prepare us for a deeper surrender of faith. And she she uses the, the image of wax that gets impressed upon. And what is impressed upon us is the will of the Lord. And what is the wax that he impresses it on is our will. God's will forms our will in this kind of prayer. This prayer that involves a very difficult death to self. And existentially, from our our standpoint, sometimes there can be too much of a sentimental vision of this death to say, oh, I'm going to die to myself. And there's kind of this flare of self-pity in the background. For Teresa of Avila, this death to self is, is a very painful reality, and it demands everything from us. She's speaking about those times where it seems like everything's falling apart in our lives, and all our dreams and ambitions and desires and everything that we held most beautiful and important to us, all of a sudden it's taken away. We're brought into this place of of a deep surrender. And sometimes the Lord does this through the events of our life, that things that happen to us, 
uh, that are very, very difficult. Sometimes he, he wants us to be part of this death. And so we have to choose to let go of something that is very difficult to let go of. And that's a, a way of entering into this death. And sometimes St. John of the Cross will tell us this death is this experience even happens in prayer where a certain kind of intimacy that you felt with the Lord for a long period of time is suddenly taken from you and you, you feel like you've died spiritually. In this chapter, Teresa of Avila will also talk about the death of those we love, and she'll speak about the death of a brother or a parent. We could probably extend this, because I know there's a lot of married people, to the death of a spouse. And all of a sudden, you're wondering, uh, your life was one way, it was all set to go, uh, and, and then this person whom you so profoundly loved and relied upon, the Lord has taken him to himself, and you're left with this heart-breaking sorrow. And oftentimes, external trials and internal trials, things that we need to renounce, all of this comes together all at once in this spiritual death. And there's a way, especially in the beginning, you, you feel numb. You feel you've suffered death. In that moment, that's why this teaching is so critical. In that moment, Jesus has trusted you with a great moment of grace. And this moment of grace gives you the freedom in the midst of all that numbness and hurt and sorrow to choose to love. And when you choose to love in the midst of that kind of overwhelming being crushed, when you choose to love, this is where this union, this prayer of union is born. And, um, and this is what Teresa of Avila is trying to give her nuns. In this chapter, she emphasizes, how do you know that you've actually entered into this prayer of union? Well, there's the suffering part, but there's also, it's not just suffering, uh, because in suffering, we can also fall victim to self-pity far too easy. It's suffering, and in the midst of that suffering, choosing to love. And in choosing to love, availing ourselves, making us more vulnerable to suffer rather than less. In that love of our neighbor, because we can't see our love of God, but we can see our love of neighbor, in choosing to love our neighbor, this is where is unveiled for us the beautiful union that the Lord is giving to us. It's so difficult, I think, to be able to discern. Yeah, well, She's talking about, actually, in that particular paragraph, she's talking about the fact that somebody can be given a very sublime experience in prayer, which would seem to anticipate this union, and you feel everything in you wants this union and only wants God's will when you're in the midst of the prayer, and then you go out after prayer and you betray it. And mm -hmm. <laughs> you betray the grace that you were given. Uh, and she's not saying, what, she's not trying to beat anybody up or, or be negative or accusing. She just, she just wants us to keep it real. Somebody can receive a grace of prayer that begins to approach this, but how do you know that you've fully entered into this kind of union, this union of hearts, this union of wills, which is this prayer of union? How do you know that it's happened? And the way that you know it's happened is you don't betray it. The way you know it, it, it's happened is what the Lord gives you in prayer is unveiled to you in the way you love your neighbor. 
And if you, after prayer, you're struggling to love your neighbor, you're judging your neighbor, you're short-tempered or impatient with your neighbor, judgmental of your neighbor, then there's a problem. Your will isn't completely conformed to God's yet. When you genuinely love your neighbor, it pains your heart. It pains your heart that their weaknesses should be known to others. Just like you would want to protect yourself from people knowing your own weakness, all of a sudden you're fired up to protect the person you love from being thought of in any way ill because of their weakness. And so you sorrow over their weakness sometimes more than they themselves sorrow over their own weakness. You sorrow over their weakness as if it's your own. And uh, uh, and you want to help them deal with that weakness. You want to help them grow that weakness. And you're so careful not to judge them because of their weakness, because you know what terrible struggle it is. You have compassion for them in their weakness. That kind of love, that's telling you that this prayer of union has taken hold of your heart and the graces that it's give, that it gives has begun to characterize your own life. You know, there's a term that she uses in uh, this, the 11th chapter that I've seen in the writings of uh, Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, uh, Edith Stein, and it's compassionating, compassionating with another, co passioning. Uh, um, it's not just compassionate. It's actually entering into the passion of another, like our Lord's passion, to help them to carry that cross. And Teresa, she's speaking about, essentially, that is the fruit from this type of union. Is she not? You've caught that verb very well. And I think, yeah, in paragraph 11, it, it comes up we're not kind of in our journey to the Lord, we're not isolated individuals who kind of make progress based on uh, our own kind of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. The Lord has called us into a union of his body. There's an ecclesial reality in which we're implicated in each other's plight. And the way she's describing love of neighbor particularly the way she describes, uses this verb, compassionate, to compassionate your neighbor, the sister that the Lord has given you, the friend. It means we so enter into their plight that what they're suffering, we suffer with them. We don't suffer with them reliant on our own strength and fortitude. What usually happens is the Lord will put you into places that are far beyond your own strength and fortitude. We suffer with them, reliant on the strength and fortitude that Christ gives us for that purpose. We do this out of love and devotion for him because he does not want them to suffer alone. And so he helps to carry their suffering through us, through our compassion for them. We're implicated with them in the form of a friendship. I have a very dear student a seminarian who's uh, a seminarian for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, a, a former student at uh, Thomas Aquinas College. And he's recently uh, written an article uh, and he sent it to me. And his article was uh, about his time with a young adult group somewhere in Los Angeles. He was spending time with them and they were praying as a young adult group. They were praying together about the homeless and one of the people in the young adult group began to list by name 
some of the homeless people that they had gone out and met. And he referred to these people that, that he was saying by name. He referred to them as friends. And this really struck my student. He said, you know, we're so worried about some finding some uh, great solution, architectural, structural solution that will solve all the problems of homelessness of, in Los Angeles. I think there's about 59,000 homeless people there. And he goes, but when we walk down the street, we don't even look people in the eye. We don't acknowledge them. And here I am with this group, and they have gone out into the highways and the byways and uh, shared meals with, befriended, looked in the eye, shook the hand, prayed with these people who are in such great distress in our society, who are without a place in our society. And what did these young adults offer them? What was the most important thing they offered him? My, my student said, friendship, friendship. And he went on to make the observation that to be a missionary disciple, Pope Francis has called the church to be missionary disciples, so did Pope Benedict. To be a disciple means to be willing to become friends with people out of devotion to Christ, to extend to them the hand of friendship, to know their name, to look them in the eye, to be present to them like a friend. And this being present to people like a friend, Teresa of Avila would say, involves this compassionating, this entering into the plight of another, letting the plight they're in, the things they're suffering, the passion that they suffer, become the passion that we suffer with them. To return to your point, Chris, this is a very important movement of the Spirit in our lives, the Holy Spirit. And when it happens, this is the most wonderful sign that this prayer of union has begun to become part of our lives. Suffering the spiritual death, it hurts so much. But the way we know that in this spiritual death, new life is born is that we find ourselves implicating ourselves with the strength of Christ in the plights of others, becoming their friends, being present to them as their friends. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. Litany of Humility O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled. Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored. Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised. Deliver me, Jesus. 
from the desire of being preferred to others. Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted. Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being calumniated. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected. Deliver me, Jesus. That others may be loved more than I. That others may be esteemed more than I. That in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease. That others may be chosen and I set aside. That others may be praised and I unnoticed. That others may be preferred to me in everything. That others may become holier than I, provided that I become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. When someone has gotten to this point in their spiritual life and there is that such a heartfelt encounter, that union begins to emerge, the importance of being on the journey with someone who has experienced this is so beneficial, isn't it? Because there can be maybe a possibility of thinking that we're compassionating with others when maybe it's not the best situation for us to be in. As you described the young priest who, that he was with a group and the group began to break open with each other what the experience is and they're experiencing this and journeying together so that it, it bears great fruit. Sometimes we might get knocked off course there's a real danger of that if we are not operating out of that fruitfulness, but it's maybe something else. Am I overthinking this possibly, Anthony? Surely there's some wisdom in what you have to say. I mean, the trick is we love our neighbor according to the will of God and not beyond or less than that. And sometimes people get involved with all kinds of different social work, uh, not out of love for the will of God and the desire to do as well, but they get involved 
whether because of their personal needs. Sometimes they hide themselves in uh, doing what appear to be good works, but they're really quite empty things. They're not really loving. They're not really being filled vulnerable to any kind of self-knowledge. What's actually going on is they're using those who are in a very bad plight, they're using them to avoid things in their own lives. So that certainly can help happen. And we have to be vigilant. That's why this whole, if you read carefully this whole chapter, it begins with considerations of self-knowledge. How do I know whether or not I am really in this union with God? Where, how do I know where I stand with God? And the only way we know where we really stand with God is by considering how we really stand with our neighbor. And do we let our neighbors, by the strength of and glory of God, become our own plight? Are we willing to die to ourselves and our self-willness enough to allow that to happen? You know, that, that's the central thrust of this chapter. The problem that you've raised is that sometimes we can engage in good works without having died to ourselves. We actually can engage in good works to indulge a certain kind of, of selfishness where we're actually using the poor we're not really feeling their plight or really concerned about them. We're proving to ourselves and to everybody else that we're holier than we actually are or, or we're avoiding problems or whatever it might be. Well, that's not loving the poor. That's not loving our neighbor. That's using our neighbor. And so if we're using our neighbor, it means that we're also using God. God's beautiful. Sometimes he'll bring uh, good things out of, of this selfish approach. But when you go to love your neighbor, really love your neighbor. Your neighbor, you know, isn't far from you. These young people weren't going very far to find to find the, mm-hmm. the, the homeless. There, 59,000 of them. They're all over Los Angeles. So much brokenness and sadness there. They were walking in areas that were near their own neighborhoods. And they were making the decision that instead of avoiding the eyes of those who were homeless, they would reach out the hand of friendship and shake their hands. They would try to get out of themselves and make themselves present to somebody else. On the whole, I think that's a very, very good thing to do. It's just a a healthy thing to do. I think the other thing is, is less healthy. Then this problem that you get, could it be that in approaching the the homeless with compassion and kindness and so forth, could it be that there's something, you know, kind of mixed motives in my own heart that, that could there be a kind of a, a false kind of altruism that, that actually isn't for the glory of God, but for my own glory? And the answer to that, Chris, is absolutely that can happen. So when you find that happening, that first be real with yourself. Okay, I'm using God. I'm using my neighbor. Lord, help me die to myself really die to myself so that I can finally be free to love to my neighbor. Help me not be afraid of that death that I need to suffer if I'm going to follow my crucified God, because only by suffering that death can I finally be able to love. Help me not be afraid of who I am before you, Lord. Help me to surrender it completely into your hands so that you can raise me up to be more fully who I am than I can by myself. The trouble that we have in the spiritual life isn't that uh, we always think that we need to become something else other than we are. God created us who we are. We need to surrender that into his hands. That's what this mortification and death is. We're surrendering our lives into his hands. And he's the one who raises us up to be in the fullest way 
the creature he intended us to be from before the foundation of the world. And our love for our neighbor, the authenticity of it, the reality of it, what it demands from us, uh, what it calls forth from us, what it evokes from us, that love reveals to us how much we actually love God. And again, as we started our conversation, just a reminder that as St. Teresa of Avila is writing this, she has a spiritual director who is reading this, and she is sharing this with others who, I'm sure in their holy conversations, are helping each other to keep themselves real. I mean, you do need that, how sometimes we think we're, we're doing so well, but it, it actually, it's laughable in some ways. Hmm. Yeah. No, uh, we're so capable of all kinds of different self-deceits that, that it's good to have good friends. And if we, if possible, a spiritual director to bounce things off us. Uh, we talked about the ability to approach people and we, we're telling ourselves we're loving them, but we're really, <laughs> we're really using them to, to glorify ourselves. These kinds of things are exactly what the evil one constantly is doing to us. He constantly uh, is trying to thwart what God's love would otherwise do. In God's love, he wants us to die to all our natural kind of mode of life that he wants us to let go of and to surrender into his hands our dreams, our desires, our hopes. He wants us to surrender all of those into his hands, not in despair, not in this kind of nihilism, but with complete trust. If we surrender what is most dear in our hearts to him with complete trust, he will raise up and fulfill each of our dreams in ways that we could never know. And in surrendering these things to him, we're making the decision. I'm not going to pursue what I want the way I want and how I want it. I'm going to pursue what God wants when he wants and the way he wants it. And if in the beginning, when you first start doing this, all of a sudden it is disclosed to you how selfish you are and how much you're using people, even as you say you're loving them, oh, well, that's all the more the better. The Lord has already begun to bring you and begin to disclose to you the journey that you need to go on. And the evil one is already being defeated. This journey into a deeper love of God, the journey that we can see unfold through our sincere love of neighbor, it's a painful journey of, that contains many sorrows, but it's also a journey of immense joy. At the end of the day, the meaningfulness of this kind of life, its fullness, it makes the heart just filled to overflowing. And every sorrow, every sacrifice, every renunciation, every hardship, uh, you look back at it and you know that it's completely worth it. Because to have the love of God on fire in you, imprinted in you, is worth everything that could ever possibly happen. Anthony, in closing on chapter three of the fifth mansion, what would your guidance be? What would you tell maybe there's a group of people out there that are listening to what you have to say today and have been diving deep into this prayer? What would you have them spiritually practice in this moment? In this chapter, my thought keeps on going back to John Paul II. He contributed some very powerful teaching to Vatican II in the constitution called Gaudium et Spes. In number 22, he, he speaks about how Jesus Christ 
stands at the center of human history, revealing the truth about who we are and the immensity of God's love for us. And then he goes on from there in this next couple paragraphs of the document, he talks about, you know, the human person is a mystery to ourselves. And the way the human person finds the truth of who he is is by giving the gift of himself to another. And that's the very life of the Holy Trinity. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are given to one another for all eternity. So the Son completely gives himself to the Father so that when he, he becomes man and enters into our, our world, the way he gives himself to the Father is through the cross. This powerful grace of giving ourselves to the Father uh, completely, we do this through our love of neighbor. In order to grow spiritually, in order to see what how God is helping us to grow, we need to learn to give ourselves. Teresa of Avila, in fact, says, forget your interests for others, however much nature may rebel. When opportunity occurs to take some burden upon yourself to ease your neighbor of it, do not fancy it will cost you nothing and that you will find it all done for you. Think what love he bore for us cost our spouse, who to free us from death, himself suffered the most painful death of all, death of the cross. To choose this pathway of love cost everything. But it's the pathway of our crucified God. Jesus held nothing back for our sake. He has given us our neighbor, our friend, our spouse, our son and daughter, our parents, our co-workers, our fellow parishioners, the members of the community that we're in, these God has entrusted to us so that we can forget our self-interests for their sake. And our nature will rebel against that. We must not live in la-la land and think that because we've resolved so heroic a thing, it's somehow going to be easy. It will cost us everything. But this is how we discover the truth of who we are. And when we discover the truth of who we are, and we see the image and likeness of God, there is a joy that is given us that nothing in this world can take away, not even death. It doesn't sound like you have to look very far. I was just recalling the line from a song is, open the eyes of our hearts. If you mm. just open the eyes of your heart, God will reveal, he'll show it to you. You won't have to go on a big trek, will you? Nope. <laughs> there, it's right there, right in front of you, very close. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you, Chris. God bless you. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. There, too, you will find an audio version of The Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila, the masterwork in which this series has been based. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, 
And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.